You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. We have another terrific episode today, and our special guest is Bishop Alfred Schlert, Bishop of the Diocese of Allentown. But first, this week we celebrated Memorial Day, which is an opportunity as a nation to remember and appreciate those who have died so that we might live freely. The blessings of stability and prosperity and freedom we enjoy are a testament to the price our veterans have paid. As Catholics, we remember, of course, those who have gone before us and we pray for their souls. And this past weekend, many parishes offered Mass for the repose of those who have died in service to our great nation. You know, oftentimes as people, we tend to take our blessings for granted. Perhaps this week, we can live beyond just that day and be inspired to live the kind of grace that God is calling us to live, the grace of sacrificial love, the kind of love that Jesus expressed for us when he made the ultimate sacrifice, the divine sacrifice for all of us. As we remember his sacrifice, the sacrifices of the saints, and the sacrifice that so many Americans have made throughout history for our freedom, we remember what life is really all about, love. And what is God? God is love. And so, what should your life be about? Now, let's get to work. My guest today is Bishop Alfred Schlert, who was appointed the fifth bishop of the Diocese of Allentown by Pope Francis on June 27, 2017. Bishop Schlert is a native son of the five-county diocese that serves Berks, Lehigh, Northampton, Carbon, and Schuylkill counties in eastern Pennsylvania. He was ordained a priest in September 1987 under Bishop Thomas Welsh and served directly for all three of his predecessors first as Vice-Chancellor and Secretary to Bishop Welsh, and later as Vicar General to both Bishop Edward Cullen and Bishop John Barris. And we talk about what it was like taking over for them during our interview. Both Bishop Schlert and the Diocese of Allentown celebrate their 60th birthdays this year. And so, as Catholics around the country return to in-person Masses, the Bishop has appropriately named the theme of this diocesan anniversary year, the year of real presence centered in the Holy Eucharist. I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know the bishop on our show today. And so, without further ado, here is Bishop Alfred Schlert. Well, Bishop Schlert, welcome back to Advancing Our Church. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Great to be back. Always a pleasure. It's great to see you. You know, for those who may or may not know our relationship, you know, I worked uh, for the Diocese of Allentown. I guess about six years ago, I left for about eight and a half years, and you and I got to work together pretty closely as the Vicar General and the Director of Stewardship and Development. And now I'm um, in formation in the Diocese of Allentown, as most of uh, our my friends know, and in the diaconate program. And and now you're the Bishop of Allentown. It's exciting to see uh, how things have grown and evolved, but I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, um, happy to. Very happy to. And congratulations on the 60th anniversary of the Diocese of Allentown. I feel like it was just yesterday when you and I sat at a table and we're planning the 50th anniversary of the Diocese of Allentown. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge accomplishment, obviously, and the, the clergy and the parishioners must feel proud. 
there must still be a few clergy around who were around when the diocese was announced, when the split off came from Philadelphia years ago. You still have a few guys who remember those days? We still do. Most of them, of course, at this point would be retired. Sure. But they do. And they they have very fond memories, actually, uh, of that day. It was, you know, it was kind of just happened out of the blue. They woke up one day and found out that if you're in the five counties of what are now the Diocese of Allentown, no matter where you came from, that's where you're going to be. It was exciting from their rendition of it, but mm-hmm. there were also some guys that were a, a little apprehensive because they were from the Philadelphia area. And, you know, now they were really in the northern counties and they weren't, the, the general practice at the time was eventually you worked your way back closer to Philadelphia. So for most of them, they would eventually have been working their way closer to their their families. But all of them, you know, in hindsight now say that they were very grateful. They see it kind of providentially because it was a, a brand new diocese, lots of possibilities. They were able to be pastors much sooner than they would have been in the archdiocese because just we had a great need at the time. I call those those early priests the pioneers. <laughs> they were, uh, right. Because they, they did blaze the trail, and along with Bishop McShay. And when you stop to think, they, you know, you're, they form a diocese, but they don't really give, uh, they meaning Rome, doesn't yeah. really give a lot of direction about how to construct it. And so you have to start all of your social services and things like that, because now they're they're all part of a separate diocese now. So mm-hmm. uh, they were they were exciting times, but certainly we can't romanticize them too much. They were also challenging times, but the, the priests and the people and the religious at the time, they, they really did have that spirit of uh, we're starting something great here and we want we want to you know be a part of it. And you grew up during that that time period, right, as a son of the diocese out in Easton? Yeah, you know, it was interesting when I was ordained a priest, the AD Times came up with a little factoid. They did a little research and they found that I was the first priest who was born and raised living his whole time in the Diocese of Allentown. Wow. Even my classmates, they were born before the establishment of the diocese, by even by a couple months. So, wow. yeah, so there's a little factoid. So, yeah, that's the Diocese of Allentown has been my home forever. That's incredible. So yeah. you must you, you bring a unique perspective because, you know, we're our family are kind of transplants to to the diocese. We came about 13 years ago, but but you you've watched this area grow up quite a bit over the last 50 or 60 years, right? Oh, it's amazing to see, even starting with my own neighborhood there in Palmer Township, just on the other side of our, our the other set of houses across the street was a big open field Yeah, where we used to, ourselves, we used to cut it so we could play ball and things like that. And of course, now mm-hmm. that's all houses and the diocese in many areas has just exploded yep. with expansion and housing and warehousing and the thing that I, I really say is it really isn't having anything to do with the diocese per se, but it has to do with the people. When you look at the industries that the people in the diocese depended on, when you look at coal and railroading and steel, almost all of that is gone or greatly diminished. And yet the ingenuity of our people that knew how to adjust in many ways, our diocese has gone from being 
a provider of goods to a provider of services. When you look at healthcare in every corner of our diocese, how prevalent it is. Education, especially, you know, higher education. Those are big employers. And so our people knew how to adjust. The Lehigh Valley right now is the largest growing area in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That's due to a lot of factors. I say that because it gives us even more opportunities to evangelize, you know, and again, not just in the Lehigh Valley and not just in Berks County, mm-hmm. but also in Carbon and Schuylkill counties. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we have a richness in our people and a depth of faith everywhere that is so much a blessing to us. From outside and objectively, we can see the number of parishes going down, the number of priests going down, the number of schools going down. We can tend to get into a cycle that's kind of negative, but mm-hmm. we don't have to do that. You know, we can we, right. we can and should be positive about where God is calling us, what new avenues he's opening for us, and where his grace is leading us. So it's 60 years of blessings, and certainly with the prayer that we have many more of those blessings in the years ahead. And I have no doubt that God will continue to bless us. Absolutely. I'm sure he will. And, you know, as someone who has raised his family in the diocese, I mean, my, my kids were very young when we moved here. It has just been a tremendous place to raise a family, just from a regional perspective. But but also, you know, the priests and the Catholic schools that we have here have really, I think, created a, a strong sense of community. We didn't have any family nearby. So when we came, our family's like a thousand miles away in a couple different states. And so that family in our parish really became our extended family. They say it takes a village, and it certainly does. <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly helped us. I'm curious, Bishop, as a young man, when did you first hear your calling to become a priest? You know, I get that question a lot, Jim, and it's uh, I'm always happy to answer it, but it's also very, very uneventful. So what I would first say is that like most people's vocations, yeah, we feel as if we have a natural inclination towards things and, you know, a natural inclination that already takes off the table certain things like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not really going to be a doctor if you don't like the sight of blood, things like right. that, you know, just natural things. <laughs> right. And so mine was very natural, I would say. I wouldn't say that I was always thinking about the priesthood. Like many boys my age, we started to serve mass and you did have a bit of awe in mm-hmm. being so close to the priest serving at the altar and things like that. And so there was a, a spark there of, of interest, and but it kind of went by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Or at least into the back of my mind. And then I got into high school and, you know, I did all the regular things of high school that any other student would do, <laughs> uh, all the same extracurriculars and social experiences. But then around junior year, it started to refocus. And then the thing that is always the scary thing happened. Someone said to me, in fact, it was a priest who said, you know, you should really consider the seminary. Whenever you talk to somebody who has a, you know, and they tell their vocation story, that's always kind of the moment of truth. Because up until then, it's something that you think is hidden, that no one else notices, but it's on your mind. Right. And then you start to say, gee, how about that? 
somebody else sees that in me. It doesn't have to be a priest, could be a layperson too. Sure. And then when you start to discern it a little better through prayer, and you, then you start to tell people and they say, gee, we're not surprised. So God works that way too in affirming what he's calling us to do. But it has to be done with, with prayer because remember in our lives, all of us, as uh, St. John Henry Newman said, all of us are created for some unique purpose that only we can fulfill. That's really true. We may have the same vocation. We may have the same job, but only we can do it in the way God created us to do it. I always use the example of a nurse, right? A nurse, you have two nurses. They went to the same nursing school. They have the same certification, but they're going to do nursing according to their own personality. They're going to approach a patient in a different way. They're going to administer medicine in a different way. They're going to have a different bedside manner. And that's how it is with uh, all vocation. We might share that, but we are uniquely fulfilling God's plan for us. And when we do that, when we follow God's plan as he intended it for us, we're not going to be disappointed. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have to make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Because every vocation entails sacrifice. Every single one of them, uh, every state in life demands sacrifice. But we won't have the sadness of feeling like we have misidentified what God has called us to. Mm-hmm. My story is very vanilla. It's very bland. But that's generally how it happens. More often than not is through the course of normal human daily activity becomes known to you. But you have to pray, though. That's mm-hmm. what, that's where the discernment comes in. Sure. Because, you know, discernment isn't just figuring it out. It's prayerfully figuring it out to know God's will. You know, it's funny uh, when you were talking about each one of us, we, we, because as you know, obviously, I'm discerning my own vocation. And we were coming home from our retreat at Malvern. I was driving home with a, with one of the, my classmates. And we were just kind of talking about how each of us, will have, even though we will all have a parish assignment or we'll have, you know, whatever, if we're all called to fulfill this vocation and become deacons, we'll all have that assignment that the diocese will assign us. But then what else are we going to do with that vocation? What What is God calling us to be? So we just had an interesting conversation, wh- whether it's doing a retreat or writing a blog, or as I look at the guys that I'm getting to know, I think it's really fascinating because I think each of us are going to fulfill that vocation in our own unique way, in our own unique time, and with our own unique gifts from our own perspective and our own story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful parts about going through this formation process, really coming to understand what version of, of myself that God is calling me to be and, and how that will hopefully minister to the needs that he puts in front of me, of the, the people that he puts in, in my life. So not unlike being a father. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I always say to our seminarians that the ideal seminarian is someone who also would have made a tremendous father mm-hmm. because so many of the attributes have to be in both vocations. You know, mm-hmm. you have to want to provide for your family, whether it's your physical family in the case of a priest is spiritual family. Mm-hmm. You have to want to desire to be present to them. You have to desire to want to sacrifice for them. It also means you also have to put aside some of your own self-interests 
to serve the needs of the family. Yeah, you know, Jim, I'm sure there's many times where you would have rather had to do one thing and instead we're called to do something else for the sake of the family. Oh, without a doubt. I've always I've often reflected on the thought that good fathers were not born, we're made, right? We're kind of molded and crafted in time. If I'm a good father, it's because I have a great wife and because I have a faith in God and we have a good relationship and we have that ability to talk to each other. And that has come over 20, almost 27 years of marriage, of, of trial and error, uh, certainly a lot of error on my part, the ability to say you're sorry, the ability to acknowledge when you're wrong and move forward. That's as much a formation process as anything else, without a doubt. It is. <laughs> yeah. It is. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, Bishop, uh, moving into the present day, you had this unique perspective just from from watching your, your career a little bit and and working or seeing other bishops, as you said, you've grown up in this diocese, you've spent your life here, and and you had the unique perspective, I think, of working with or working under all three predecessors, at least three of your of the four predecessors in the Diocese of Allentown, after having kind of been shepherded or mentored by maybe a couple of them and working for all of them in some way. What was it like to, to become the bishop and the leader of the diocese? Uh, it's been almost four years now. First of all, it was a privilege to work with each one of those three bishops. The fourth bishop, of course, which was the first bishop, sure. Bishop McShay, he accepted me into the seminary. Yes. So I never had the privilege yeah. of, of working with him, you know. The other three, Bishop Welsh, Bishop Cullen, and Bishop Barris, I did. I worked closely with all three of them. It really gives you an appreciation for the men and their gifts and talents and the unseen sacrifices sure. that were made for priests and people mm-hmm. that no one will ever know, as, as it should be. It's still quite another thing to actually be the bishop yourself. Sure. Because, you know, you can recommend and you can offer an opinion and you can be the one who has to implement certain things as the vicar general like I was. But to be responsible for making the decision, that's a whole other thing. I would say because of my experience working with those three bishops, I don't fear that. I don't fear having to make decisions. Mm-hmm. But you do have a sense of the weightiness of many of them, the gravity of many of them, because yes, they can affect people's lives, and that's important. But most importantly, what you decide can affect, and what you say, and what you preach, and what you teach can affect people's souls. Before God, you're, you, meaning me, the bishop, is responsible for that. That's a big cross. Oh, yeah. And that's partly why, you know, a bishop wears a cross. Once somebody said to me, when I first became a bishop, I had it on. They said, is that cross heavy around your neck? I said, not physically. (laughs) (laughs) But it is. And and that's why the bishop wears a cross, to remind himself. Yeah. And it's not just for bishops, of course. We're all called to conform ourselves and to embrace the crosses in our lives. But to remind the bishop that in a special way. Yeah. He is called to embrace the cross for the sake of his people. That's what God calls us to do. It's an awesome responsibility, awesome in the sense of almost too big to comprehend. I remember, Bishop, I remember when I I saw you at the press conference when you said, you know, as a diocese, we've, you know, after Bishop uh, Barris had announced his departure to go to Rockville Center and 
We are in this time of preparation and a prayer for our new bishop. And your comment at your opening press conference was, I never suspected that we were praying for me. (laughs) 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 It must have been, I mean, that, that 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 gave me the perspective of how awesome, I mean, how awesome of a responsibility you obviously understand that it is. And, and, and as I knew you would, but it was just, uh, it was humbling. It was a very humble comment that you made. <laughs> it really was. But to, to go back, Jim, the beauty of working with the bishops that I worked mm-hmm. with was to see that each and every one of them in their own way, each one had different skills, Sure. but each one of them were men of the church. Their whole being was to do what they felt in conscience was the right thing for the people of God. People can debate, just like with any human decision, you know, whether the timing was right or this or that. And that's just part of the burden of making decisions in anybody's life, not just the life of a bishop. They never did it for their own sake and oftentimes put themselves under great strain to make the decisions that they know they had they knew they had to make. Having worked with you first under Bishop Cullen and then later Bishop Barris, I mean, under Bishop Cullen, having to merge and consolidate all those parishes back in 2008 must have really weighed on him, you know, just on a personal level. That's tremendous cross to bear and the pain that was felt by so many. And then, you know, certainly Bishop Barris made some very difficult decisions during his his time as well. And as I know you have uh, in your time, it calls you to, I'm sure, a very serious prayer life, <laughs> a very a very real encounter with Christ. <laughs> it's true. You can't really sustain the work that needs to be done without a lot of prayer. You can't make the correct decisions relying on your own gut instincts, your own knowledge. You, you have to discern that. I use that word again, discern. You sure. have to discern that in prayer. You know, as a, as a bishop, I often say, none of us as bishops, none of us as lay people, none of us as priests or religious, get to choose the times in which we live and serve. Right. So, you know, you look at the Bishop Athanasius very early in the history of the church. Hmm. He fought so much against heresy. He was one of the few bishops in the church that hadn't fallen into the heresy called Arianism, but he stuck with it. And he saved the church in many ways, even when other bishops were way off base about this. I'm sure he didn't want that controversy in his life. I'm sure he didn't want that pressure in his life. Yeah. When you look at Pope Paul VI, for example, and all the turbulence that he had to deal with after the Second Vatican Council and the misinterpretation of so many things that came out of the Second Vatican Council that were either innocently or willfully misconstrued right. as to what the council was really saying. Uh, you know, he, he had to do that when he promulgated Humane Vitae, you know, the, the encyclical on human life, which talked about artificial birth control, mm-hmm. talked about a lot of things actually that he said would happen as a result of artificial contraception. And they're all here today the tremendous disrespect for human life and things like that. But he was getting a lot of pressure, even from within the church, to say, don't do this. Don't do this. Prominent theologians were against what he taught, but he stayed the course. And humanly, he wasn't, wouldn't have been able to do that. It was the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
It was his own depth of prayer. So, like I said, none of us get the chance to choose the times in which we live and serve, but all of us are where we are right when God needs us and wants us. But we have to stay in touch with him through prayer so that we get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this past year has certainly been that kind of year. We haven't, (laughs) none of us chose this past year, but we certainly all had to, to deal with it in our own ways. And my view from 3,000 feet, there have been a, a lot of blessings and there's been some real challenges, but a lot of evolution too, I think, in ways that, uh, you know, for the church that we've been able to move forward in, in a digital way that maybe would have taken us longer to do if we weren't kind of forced, you know, in, into doing this. And I know that there are many things to celebrate, many accomplishments of the diocese, but also I'm sure many accomplishments of the parishes. What are some of the things that come to your mind? when you think of the ways in which the diocese has been blessed and and to celebrate in the 60th anniversary? Well, above all, I would say, and this has come out very clearly during the pandemic, the greatest blessing of our diocese are the people, the laity, the priests, the deacons, Mm -hmm. the religious, the seminarians. So our greatest joy, our greatest resource and blessing is in the people. Now, but it's not about us because we are a people nourished on the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So that's why as part of our 60th anniversary, we are also celebrating the year of the real presence. Jesus Christ present in the Holy Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, because that's what nourishes us. Other than that, we're a crowd. We're a crowd. (laughs) What makes us a church is Jesus's presence in the Holy Eucharist and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's why we can continue to survive when things are very, very difficult. That's how we can adapt. And that's how we can continue to do our mission because of the goodwill of all of those people I mentioned in our diocese and the nourishment of the Holy Eucharist. Because without that, we are devoid of our fuel, if you will, you know, and, and mm-hmm. we turn into a crowd instead of a church, yeah. a faith community. And as wonderful as online masses have been during this time of, of the pandemic, we are getting to a point where people are starting to return to mass. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've had this conversation hearing you talk about the real presence and the year of the real presence as a parent, it's it's opened up an opportunity for me to talk about it with my kids, you know, because we've been doing one thing for the last year. Now it's time to go back to mass. And and why is that? Why is that different? Why can't we just watch it on TV, Dad? <laughs> you know, what, what, what is the difference? And so it's, it's given us an opportunity to really talk about, you know, the real presence of the Eucharist and why that is important in our life and why that can't be substituted by watching it on on TV. Was that part of your motivation for the theme for this year, kind of coming back to the table of the Lord and and coming back to Mass after this long period of quarantine? Well, was part of it, Jim. A couple things at work. Certainly that that is a big part of it because already last Easter under COVID, yeah, which was really only about two months into the shutdown. I remember. I I already started to pray about how are we going to get people back to church? And that only intensified, that concern only intensified with me as this went on and on and on. 
You know, I think a lot of people in March when we shut down think, oh, this is this is akin to a long weekend because of a blizzard or something. Right. You know, we're all going to have go back to work in just a few days. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> that didn't happen. No. And and so, you know, it doesn't take a long time for a habit to form. Yeah. And so the habit of not going to church on Sunday and fulfilling my obligation by watching it online, so to speak, fulfill the obligation can become very comfortable. And so that's why early on I said to our staff, I said, we have to get people from the couch to the pew again, because the couch is more comfortable than the pew. Right. Well, what it lacks, of course, is the community aspect. And most importantly, it lacks the Eucharistic aspect, because we can watch Mass on TV, we can make a spiritual communion, does not have the same effect as receiving Jesus in the Holy Eucharist in the midst of the assembly, Mm -hmm. the people. So that was important. And that's part of the year of the real presence, the real presence of Christ, but also your real presence at mass before the real presence. So there's a little interplay of words there. So that was the first thing. That was my overriding. And then Somewhere in the midst of the pandemic, that Pew study came out and said that only a third, 31%, a little less than a third, of Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. That's amazing, isn't it? It's it's frightening. It really is frightening because that's our core belief. That's what makes the Catholic Church the Catholic Church is our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. And so, you know, that's the air we breathe and we're asphyxiating ourselves if we're not believing that. If we're just receiving Holy Communion as a matter of uh, form and proper etiquette and this is what we do when we go to Mass, but it can't be devoid of belief. You know, even in my pastoral letter, I said, you know, that we didn't just get here overnight. This has reasons. Some of them are within the church, some are outside the church. But, you know, somewhere along the line, I would say since the Second Vatican Council, we lost that idea of Eucharistic adoration and devotion. And the preaching, uh, you know, and the homilies oftentimes moved away from that reality of Christ present in the Eucharist. Certainly, oftentimes, unfortunately, even in the religious formation of our youth, it's not emphasized as much as it is. And then you have the societal effects too, where more and more we start to see the fact that science, especially for younger people, science is really, and technology is really what they're putting their faith in. And if this can't be scientifically or technologically proven, is it really worth my time? And then the idea too of, we are moving away from the idea of coming together as a group, as community. You know, there was a book that came out a number of years ago, very good book. It was, I think it was called something like Bowling Alone. Hmm. And the whole premise of it was that we stopped being, at some point, a society of joiners. Hmm. So people didn't bowl in leagues anymore. They didn't feel the need to come together. It was also that at the same time, people... We're not joining the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or women's groups, things like that. 
because people started to just kind of go off on their own. And then, of course, technology allows people to be in contact with millions of people if they want and never leave their kitchen table. So that phenomenon also argues uh, against coming together as a community of faith, too, because people aren't joiners anymore. Right. And, And so all of this put together gave me a great concern. But most importantly, the fact that we need people to be really present before the real presence of Christ. And so we need to, we have work to do. We have a catechesis to do, you know, we need to reinvigorate and in some case discover for the first time for people what the church teaches about the richness of the Holy Eucharist. You know, it doesn't have to be a big theological treatise. Right. There has to be obviously the faith element uh, because right. without the eyes of faith, all you're going to see is, is a host a, yeah. a, a bread, you know, bread and wine. Mm-hmm. The eyes of faith allow you to see, and it's a gift. Faith is a gift. The sacraments are a gift. Only through that faith do you see not the elements of bread and wine, mm-hmm. but the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So, The things that we're going to be doing this year primarily are the things that the church has already given us, but maybe have fallen out of use. Right. You know, so my biggest hope for this year is that through the year and as a legacy of this year, not my legacy, but the people's legacy, is that our parishes would have at least weekly times of adoration before the Blessed Sacrament combined with confession, because we can't talk about the Holy Eucharist without the sacrament of penance. They go together. One prepares for the other. Penance prepares us to receive the Holy Eucharist. So that would, to me, be a great victory if we had more Eucharistic adoration, more time for confession, and prayers for vocations to the priesthood and the religious life that take place in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. That's where vocations come from. People on their knees praying and families willing to support a man or woman's desire to serve the church. So often one or both of those things are missing when a young person is trying to determine whether God is calling them or not. So what I'm presenting to our people to do is not creative in any way. It's what the church already has for us. We just have to use it. It's so powerful. Yeah. You know, but we've let it on the shelf for too long. It's such a beautiful theme that so clearly ties into where we're at and where we need to be as a church that I'm sure that you must have received some great feedback from the clergy and from parishioners about this year of real presence because it, it couldn't have come at a better time. And I would imagine that there are other dioceses who would hear this and think, you know, of course, <laughs> that's what we should be focused on right now. Well, it, it's true. Uh, I, I've gotten a lot of correspondence of gratitude. No one has written me, thankfully, to say, you shouldn't be doing this. That's a good thing. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. Uh, and, and also, since then, the National Bishops Conference, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, has also now started planning on how on a national level Mm. we can reinvigorate our belief and our devotion to the Holy Eucharist. So, you know, I'm I'm glad we're doing it. 
to me, that seems like a little affirmation that we're on yeah. the right track. Sure. But how can you not be on the right track when you're promoting, you know, devotion and worship of the Holy Eucharist? I, you know, I, I, like I said, it's not creative and it's something you really can't make a mistake in doing. I'll say. Absolutely. Well, Bishop, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I really appreciate you being on the on the podcast today. I know how busy a bishop's calendar is. And uh, as always, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate the, the time that you spent with us today. This has been wonderful, especially because it's been a while since you and I chatted. So I feel like we got to catch up a little bit here. This has been wonderful. It was a nice uh, opportunity to catch up and hopefully some others will have will be eavesdropping into our conversation here. Yes, uh, Jim. So I, I wish a great success with your your podcast and the, the ministry that you, you have around that for your future formation and discernment towards the permanent diaconate, too. Thank you, Bishop, and thanks for the opportunity to discern that. You're welcome. God bless. God bless you and all of your listeners. Thank you. I want to thank Bishop Schlert for being on our show today and for sharing his love for the diocese and all of his wonderful insights with us. Bishop, it was a real privilege having you on Advancing Our Church. Thank you. And if you'd like more information about Bishop Schlert and the Year of the Real Presence or the Diocese of Allentown, I'll leave links in our show notes. And once again, if you'd like to view the full video presentation of the podcast, I encourage you to visit the show's episode page on advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 21 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everyone. Again, happy Memorial Day. Have a great week. Take care. We'll see you next week where we'll talk about diocesan annual appeals. And I have an extremely talented special panel of annual appeal experts who will join me for that conversation. Have a great week, everyone. God bless.